write code that is absolutely good for the language that you're writing in because compilers do a fantastic job at optimizing your code for you. Don't second guess your compiler. Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for doers making our digital world greener, one byte at a time. I'm your host, Gael Duez, and I invite you to meet a wide range of guests working in the tech industry to help you better understand and make sense of its sustainability issues and find inspiration to positively impact the digital world. If you like the podcast, please rate it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to spread the word to more responsible technologists like you. And now, enjoy the show. Green software. Quoting my dear friend Ismail Velasco, our code is harming the planet. And I am privileged today to have two of the best experts, European-wide, and I dare to say worldwide, to deep dive about it. One is based in London, England, and the other in Berlin, Germany. Let's start with Anne Curry. When I think about her, I have this song from Dire Straits, Lady Rider, in mind. Because Anne is a writer indeed, of several science fiction novels, as well as the much-looked-forward O'Reilly book, Building Green Software, with her two partners in crime, Sarah Sue and Sarah Begman. The book is in early release, and I can't wait to discover the animal which will be finally chosen. Anne and the two Sarah, with and without the H, are also pillars of the Green Software Foundation, and are carrying the flag for sustainability in tech in many conferences, like QCon London or API Days Paris, just to name a few. Arne. When I had the pleasure to meet Arne, we went for a walk in a small Berliner park. This is how he likes to exchange, in nature. And during our talk, I was astonished by Arne's deep knowledge on green computing the articles he shared with me, and his commitment to build efficient tools for developers in a true open-source spirit in the startup he created, Green Coding Berlin. As you can guess, both of them are seasoned software engineers having decades of practice behind. Hello, Arne. Hello, Han. Nice to have you on the show today. So I'm going to be super cautious with uh, the pronunciation of your names today, huh? so that everyone will uh, understand when I ask Anne and when I ask Arne to, <laughs> to intervene, not to confuse too much or, uh, or American friends. And I'd like to start uh, with the, the usual question I ask to all my guests, which is, how did you become interested in the sustainability and in sustainability in, in the sustainability of our digital sector in the first place? Uh, did you experience a, a light bubble moment or was it more like something that was there forever? Maybe, uh, Arne, if you want to um, start? Sure. Um, yeah, thank you for the nice introduction. I think um, uh, I think the, the important point is that you already mentioned that I have already been a software developer for quite a while, I think 16 plus years or so. Um, and it was just finished with my former company, which was mostly in performance advertising, uh, sorry, performance marketing, advertising, online shops and stuff. So um, one of these classical Berlin businesses, I would say, at least at the time. And I wanted to make something um, that has a more ha has more meaning to me and has a more sustainable touch. So I tried to branch out also in different fields. It, uh, wasn't clear if it would be digital or not. And then I got, um, we have a strong meetup culture here in Berlin, actually, same as, as in the US, I guess. And, um, I was introduced to a meetup about green coding. So people that claim that they can make the world a little bit better, not only the digital sector, uh, by using software to do it in particular. And it's, I mean, on the one hand, it was a bit surprising that you can be a professional in your domain for 16 plus years and you obviously know that there's stuff like supercomputer optimizations and hardware gets better over time and more efficient. But you, you didn't even think about like I, in Germany, we have this pro work like sweeping in front of your own door. So basically just checking whatever you do and if that could be improved efficient in any way. And I got introduced to this meetup group and was, I would say... Yeah, it kind of had this mind-blowing touch to me that it was like, wow, actually there is so much you can do and this niche opened up to me, like what I believe green coding still to a certain extent is, um, that you can get to know very many people very quickly who seem to be the top players who are currently doing what they're doing in the moment and that there is so much potential 
um, to be lifted. Like there's so much to be done. You can do with software so much efficiency gains that are still lying around in the software field. And I immediately knew, okay, this is what I what I would like to do. And I looked around, and there were not many tools at the time. Um, the tools that I just discovered, which kind of had my idea already a bit um, implemented, was for instance Greenframe.io, which is, is still around, and I think it's actually from France, right? Um, and yeah, I, I picked up the tool and I tried to use it, and it didn't work at all for me, and it was not open source. And then I thought the natural way, okay, I'm going to contribute, um, but it was not possible. They were they were not act, not interested. I contacted the support, didn't get a call back, etc. And then I thought, okay. I'm going to re-implement it myself, made the green metrics tool, which is one of the main tools we're doing, and said, okay, I want to also do it a bit more professional and be a business and want to make research in this field. And this is where I created Green Coding Berlin, set up a small team of people that I really like to work with. And now we're doing research and trying to make the sector a bit greener. What about you, Anne? I've always been very interested in efficiency. And uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that well, so I've been in the software industry since the early 90s. And back then, everything had to be efficient. We didn't really have any choice in that. The, the machines were really terrible, you know, it, it, compared to a thousand times, in many ways, a thousand times worse, a thousand times less bandwidth, a thousand times less power. Uh, and, and so we had to be incredibly efficient in the way we, we wrote things. So back in the 90s, I, was, I worked for a while on the first version of Microsoft Exchange. And these days, one of my um, co-authors, Sarah, um, Sarah Bergman, she works on exchange, you know, nearly nearly 30 years later. And it's it's one of the interesting, it's always been interesting to me that, that that's still effectively the same product, uh, but it requires a thousand times more resources to do its job now than it did then. And when you look at the world and the energy transition that's going to have to happen, you realize that a thousand times more resources that's a lot. And we could really be doing with that, uh, with, with using those, that's electricity, those resources, as efficiently as we did in the past today, except there are issues with that. You, you can't just go ahead and do it. That's, that's the, the, the tricky thing to be doing at the moment. How do we align them both? So I wouldn't say I didn't have a kind of um, an epiphany, a kind of like religious belief that we had to do better. Just the the knowledge that we really could and this is something that has to happen, and therefore we will do it. And this is this is a key way that we will do it through increased code efficiency. Uh, but that's not it's not the only way, but it is a, a fundamental way. The mentor who told me because I didn't do any uh, software engineering back in university. Yeah? That is not what I studied, but I learned uh, everything uh, on the ground with a, a tremendous mentor called uh, Jean Yves, and um, <laughs> he used to tell me about already about the old days, you know, and he had this expression like, you know, in the old days, we had to break every bite into two. <laughs> and I was like, and you know, it, it started already to be yeah, quite convenient. The, the computing power were going up, storage was less and less of an issue, etc. But I could not, you know, forget what he used to tell me, like, you need to pay attention to memory resources, you need to pay attention, and we completely uh, lose sight of it. And uh, it, it's quite fun to hear you uh, referring to these times where resources were super scarce and, and super expensive, actually. And um, that actually leads me to the question I wanted to ask you, Anne, first. So I might lose my bet, but I would dare to say that... Uh, if I bet a dollar or a euro or a pound with you, and you choose uh, your currency, um, that the word green software was not that widespread, I guess, when you started coding. So how do you see the evolution today, and maybe more specifically uh, during the recent years? Where, where are we? I mean, is it that widespread, or is it more like, or do we live in some kind of informational bubble uh, on you and I, so that actually... We think everybody cares, but that's not that much the case. No, I, I think, well, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll answer your first question first, which is, no, um, 30 years ago, green software did not exist as a concept for, for two reasons, really. Software just wasn't, wasn't that much of a hit on the, on, uh, the, the economy at that, that point. It wasn't, you know, it, wasn't in, it, it didn't, didn't use that much electricity. We, the, the software industry wasn't that big. It didn't have the, the impacts that it does today. 
Uh, plus also, you know, culturally, we weren't thinking about these kind of things back then. But ironically, the, the kind of things that that you have to do or a p- part of being efficient and, be, and using energy well uh, for software, we were just doing because we had to, because we had those terrible machines. So in some ways, we were great because we were doing a lot of the right things, not all the right things, but we were doing a lot of the right things. We had efficiency absolutely down pat. But that was because that was necessity rather than because we actually we actually had to do it. But these days, I think you're right in saying that that there's a risk that we're all in a bubble where we think this is something people care about now, but it but it isn't. But it has become massively, massively more top of mind in the past few years. I remember t- talking about this at conferences six, five, six years ago, people looked at you as if you were crazy. And, and we even got complaints when we, we ran tracks on this subject a few years back, people saying, well, that's politics. It's not, it's not technology. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be including it, including it in conferences. Uh, but now nobody says that. Everybody knows that it has to happen. Um, there has been, I think that IPCC report really woke everybody up. And the fact that, you know, the tech industry is one of the biggest industries. We, we have to do things. And yeah, and some of it is going to be efficiency, just like we did in the 90s. And some of it is going to be time shifting, which is in the long term, even more important. Could we say that the awareness has dramatically raised, but what about the practices? I mean, maybe Arne, you, you want to comment on this one. Did you really see... Uh, a significant change in the way people could, even if they are aware of the ecological crisis that we are into at the moment? Part, I think, of every business that everybody does is to do a bit of research of, has this maybe come up before? Like, have, have people been talking about green coding before? Are we currently on a hype or are we currently um, in some kind of a valley, so to say? And if you look back in the academic world, there was already, I think, like 2000. 7 to 2010, there was already very many papers around green coding. There was uh, the university in Texas who had this marcher supercomputer where you could actually measure all your code. And before even REPL was out there, or I, I think it was around the same time, um, which I think we, we come to technologies later, but let me let me put it in for the moment that it's a measuring technique in the processor itself. You could already do it um, on, on systems that were out there, but then basically the nobody was interested anymore. And I would say a drought of papers in the academic world happened. And now it's coming up a bit uh, again, at least in, Ger- in Germany, we have a conference about it and Viro Info, where it's mostly about uh, computings and ecology in general. So um, I would say that the green coding, at least in, in my historical view, when I looked at it, has already has its ups and downs. And now coming back to your particular question, especially I would say in the last year, I wouldn't say that there is necessarily a stronger move on people adopting these techniques. So um, a measurement you could, for instance, take is, is one of the most prominent softwares, I guess, like um, Cloud Carbon Footprint and Scaphandra, I, w- I would put out here. Like how many GitHub stars do they have over time? Like is there is there a search or something uh, quickly? Not that I have seen, at least. Um, I, I don't have all the data as I'm not the repository owner. But this is my view on on, on how Greek coding has evolved over time. But um, if, if it's okay, I would elaborate on this one a bit because you also asked me of, about what we're doing and how we see the sector in particular. We at Green Coding Berlin do not necessarily do what, what people often think about what, what green coding entails for them in particular. So when when we are talk to companies or young developers, they ask us for optimizations. So they say, okay, how can I make my code greener in particular right now? Like which tool do I have to use to emit less carbon? This is actually something we, we don't focus a lot on particular because green coding from, from, from my view on, if, if you look at, uh, at the digital sector as a whole, is not a problem that is coming from the industry itself. But, um, so, so the, the industry doesn't necessarily have an issue with the digital product that it's using. It's rather something that's coming from, uh, from, from, from states as actors, from developers and from consumers. So the industry itself, in my view, has an incentive to tackle things that they think that are either not efficient enough, like for instance, the machine learning models, because they cost them a lot of money. So I think this will resolve on its own. There is no a bit additional pressure might be nice, but it's not necessarily needed, I guess, for this to transition or things that are not cost effective. So um, if, if you look at something like YouTube, Twitch and Bitcoin, 
um, they are in itself, for, for the most part of it, um, already cost effective. But people complain about it a lot and think, oh, like, can we not make this greener in a way? Because they often don't use these technologies themselves. So you will rarely hear complaints about people that earn their money with Bitcoin, that Bitcoin should be should use less energy, you know, or people that use you twit, don't use Twitch are more likely to complain that one streamer can emit so and so much amounts of carbon. Um, but for the, the companies that run them, like Google that runs YouTube or Twitch, that I think is owned by Amazon, um, it's it's a cost-effective thing for them to, to use these platforms. So they will produce an enormous amount of data, which is harmful uh, on, on its own, but it works for them. So there is the incentives is there not that intense. And I think green coding techniques on, on YouTube will take a bit until they're implemented if they are not directly cost-effective, for instance. On the flip side, the developers are, are becoming more concerned so this is what we see for instance as a company but this overlap of business and interest i think this is still in the making and i'm not really sure if this is the biggest driver so i think that green coding and, and the effect so coming back to your to your question in particular will mostly happen and this is also what what we work at green coding in particular through regulations and this means that you have to have the transparency first and this is what our tools are mostly doing they are giving developers and users transparency they make stuff comparable and then some someone can step in like like regulators or society to force that optimization techniques or limits can be uh, can be implied and how do you enable more transparency to happen when we have so many issues i'm, I'm not gonna <laughs> brag or uh, quote too much during this uh, this discussion uh, max schultz from the sdia but he's got a point when he says again and again that especially the the, the main hyper scalers are not providing enough comparable and transparent data to truly uh, leverage everything that we could do uh, in, in computing so do you also believe that it's an issue or actually what you were saying is that with the tools that you've developed or the approaches that you you, you encourage people to follow, uh, there is a way to, to become more efficient, even if some data are missing. And I know that all the hyperscalers are, <clears throat> I would say, not doing things at the same speed, but I will not enter this debate here. It's interesting. With the, the hyperscalers are it, are interesting because you can put pressure on them. Even it, Obviously, governments and things can put pressure on them, but it's amazing how much pressure users, customers can put on them. If you say, look, I want this, I'm demanding better foot, uh, carbon footprint uh, measure, I, I'm demanding this information. They are quite, cost well, let's say, they're not they are. AWS, Amazon is quite customer responsive. Actually, Azure is quite customer responsive as well. Google, Google not so much. But if you raise this, if enough customers raise it, and it doesn't require that many, and you keep raising it, they will see that there's customer demand for it, and then they will do it. And when they talk, when Amazon talk about being customer obsessed, they actually are. If you keep raising, if, an, if an, a handful of people, not that many, just keep raising this with their AWS reps, we have a good chance of getting it. And we got those um, sustainability commitments. Whether they will be sufficient in the end uh, remains to be seen, but um, we have made progress by putting just getting folk to raise issues with their, with their providers. I, I think this, this is a big of, one of the big levers to go to that you have to um, put the pressure on the cloud providers either through the user side or through a regulatory side. And for instance, this is what our tools are trying to do. So a lot of people run an extensive amount of CI/CD pipelines. And what our tools do is that they simply create a, an easy machine learning model that's based on, on an open database of energy consumption of servers called spec power. And then um, you plug that into a bit of code so that it can be digestible by, by GitHub Actions, this is their pipeline product, or by GitLab CI, this is their pipeline product. Uh, and then you just see at the end how much your pipeline is consuming, and you see it for your hundreds or thousands of pipelines that you're having, and then you have a number at least at the end of the month, and you can see if this number is going up or going down, and then you, you can go the route that, that Anne was suggesting and saying, hey, this number is maybe not the best because this company, Green Coding Building, is doing it from the outside in. So why don't you give us these numbers? So they, they go to GitLab and they go to GitHub or Microsoft in, um, uh, in particular, and they say, we want better numbers. It's, it's not so hard for you to give them to us. And now we see that it's possible. So actually somebody can do it from the outside in. So why don't you give us these numbers so we can be, can be better? But 
uh, we believe that people need to see this to a certain extent until they can even ask the right questions. It's a bit like starting with the metrics we have to create a, a momentum and then in parallel putting pressure to get better metrics and better data from providers. And if you don't mind, both of you, because we, we could we could discuss a lot about cloud providers and, and, and the general approach, but actually I'd like to deep dive a bit more with you. Could you share the top two, three techniques or approaches that you implement, I would say, on, on almost on a daily basis to reduce carbon or carbon emission caused by software? I'm a bit controversial on this one. So I'll, I'll, I'll start off and say, because uh, this is something that came up when we wrote, um, when we started writing Building Green Software. One of the questions that came up immediately from, from people saying, oh, can you, in the cover in the, uh, can you, in the book, can you cover some examples of efficient code? Uh, and and so like I, I used to write efficient code. I, almost everybody I know writes efficient code. And, and we all, this is terrible, we all laughed when someone said this because the almost the definition of efficient code is it's incredibly custom. It is utterly and specifically custom to the very, very particular use case that you're interested in. And a really efficient code takes ages to write. It is incredibly bad for developer productivity. So generally, it's quite hard to give people advice about how to write efficient code. I mean, you can, you can, you can say, well, I'll use efficient languages like C or C++ or Rust rather than less efficient ones than like Python. But even that's not so clear cut these days because there are new Python compilers that are uh, compiling Python to machine code or compiling Python to C. So you can still write in the inefficient language and have it transformed into a more efficient one because they know that developer productivity is really killed by writing this very, very highly custom code. So it's hard to give generic advice. Uh, if, if you speak to, to folk who are, um, who are really still writing this efficient code, because if you're, for example, in the networking area, you're still having to write that high proficient code, that we, the same kind of code that we used to write 30 years ago, because you really, really need that super performance. And uh, their feedback is generally write code that is absolutely good for the language that you're writing in because compilers do a fantastic job at optimizing your code for you. Don't second guess your compiler. Follow best practice so that your compiler can optimize as far as humanly possible. It's it's a bit sad because everybody wants to hear some amazing um, C technique, whatever. But fundamentally, it's just really, really hard and very custom. The best thing you can do is measure different tools, get somebody else to do it for you. Don't don't custom write your own high-proficient code. Find libraries and tools that are good and use them, which is what you need to use the measurement for. You need to measure to find out which are the good tools and libraries, and you swap out poor ones for those more um, more optimized ones, but don't attempt to do it yourself unless you are actually writing those libraries. I I would say so. It's a bit sad, but I would say there's no there's no killer technique that you can use because it's all hyper custom. You know, it's all basically asking around with your L1, L2, L3 caches for a very very specific uh, use case. I don't know if you you might disagree with me, Anna. No, I actually have the same. I have, I have the notion that that we are very on par here um, with our view where the optimi- how good these generic optimization tips are. However, I would like to, if if you think about it, what we often get is requests from from users who see these articles that Amazon has implemented a new Gzip or Zlib compression technique in their S3 service, and it saved them. I don't know. I think it was in the tens or in the hundreds of millions. So that because they had to use less hard disk to store their stuff, or then you see this article that there is a 70% improvement in React by just ditching the virtual DOM, right? So, so apparently it is possible on a particular product to get these gains. However, I would very much agree that on a generic level, it's either extremely hard to implement. So there are techniques that are known for many years, like using vector instructions, loop unrolling, etc. Um, that do work if you really put the work in, um, but it's a very questionable if really in the end, if you look at the whole thing, like also the time the developer had to sink in, how much the software will run in the end, how much it cost you building these 50 to 100 iterations until you got it working, if this really saved you something in in, uh, in the final 
calculation. So um, I think this is a, is a bigger question. And I think Gail, you might make a separate podcast on this, like this, this whole idea of software life cycle, life cycle assessment, also something that Max is very passionate about. But, but I would like to give you our approach on how we typically do it. I, I think we have the same idea that, that Anne mentioned that measuring is, is like one of the first steps. So we have, when we typically consult with companies or when we do workshops with developers, we have these five pillars, so to say. So it's first of understanding. So first of all, people often don't understand the terms that are even used if you talk about energy and energy efficiency. They don't even know how to um, how, how a network could even cost them energy. That network costs can be linear or, or they can uh, they can be progressive in a way. And then transparency, like what, whatever you uh, sorry, then measuring and transparency. For, so whatever you then have understood and measured, you should also show it to people and, and make it public. So in, as a, in GitHub as a badge or something, uh, then continuity is, is a pillar we focus on a lot. So it doesn't help you if you look at it one time. So you have to monitor it over time. So the same like the GitOps approach goes that you have to, with every release, with every build, you basically have to check if your initial measurement or your initial assumptions are still right or the product is currently derailing and you don't want that. Then the fourth pillar is the comparing. So you should, if you, or thinking about software and you're looking in the, 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 the silver bullet, sorry, not the silver bullet, the, the goal at the end, the optimization. So to actually saving something, comparing is, is often very helpful. So sometimes just looking at, okay, how much would database one, just technically identical to the database that I'm currently using, how much would this change? So, just, so just swapping libraries out and the same as you said, or swapping infrastructure out is often a better way to go than going on code level optimizations in particular. But they are obviously a point. So our first pillar is then code level optimizations wherever they make sense. Um, however, this is then specific. So you have to really look into your product. It often means using specialized tools. So maybe VTune or something or code profiling techniques. So this is very laborsome. And um, these tools are also sometimes cumbersome to also put a word, another word in here. I would say it's a lot about measuring and comparing. So rather than having like one silver bullet, which, which makes... Uh, it makes sense. Uh, if it was that easy, everyone will do it. And um, I guess the question of software productivity, I mean, the productivity for your developers is absolutely key here. We, we need to take into consideration the, the full life cycle. And uh, like, if you take <laughs> if you take three or four times, uh, uh, yeah, more uh, more days uh, to to just to release one yeah, one little piece of code, actually, you could have uh, used the the energy better. And unfortunately, it's more like 10 or 20 or 30 times as long. I remember how thing, how long things used to take. They used to take an incredible amount of time. I mean, it, it is interesting. We've had so much. In the 30 years of my career, there has been so much, more than um, more than a thousandfold improvement in machine productivity. And we've used it to get to make developers more productive. And it's very hard to make the sell to your business that that you should you should go to slow slow down because you'll go out of business so so it's kind of like you do have to trade off what you can sell to your business as well as as and what's a sensible thing for your business to do as well as what is the green thing you have to align them so i'm not saying throw out the green things i'm think i'm thinking you have to find ways to align them both and and the good news is that all the modern ways of working with microservices with open source libraries with with hyperscalers hyperscaler services. Anna said this himself, said that there's an alignment if you're a big business to make your stuff efficient because it's so many people are using it. It's worth putting in that 100x developer effort to make it efficient because you've got so many people using it that that pays off. But if you're only a small business and you, you only have a moderate number of people using your software, you'll probably never pay off pay back that developer effort to make it super efficient. So you're better off just using a library. Don't do it yourself. Use a library, use a, a, an open source library, use a, um, a hyperscaler service who are who, for whom it is worth putting in that effort. Uh, but but that isn't, I mean, we're talking about code efficiency here, but I'm not even sure in the long run that that's going to be the, the big win that we're going to make in the tech industry. I think it's going to be the time shifting because... Even now we're seeing renewables, you get huge amounts of energy at some times uh, and no energy at others. And that's that requires a whole different way of using um, electricity in the old days when it was just, you know, flick of a switch, 
fossil fuel driven. So is it, Alan, is it something that you implement quite a lot, like chasing the sun, which is a time, time shifting and, and location shifting, or, or not that much? Um, it is actually a technique we, we do implement um, on, on workshops with developers because it's, um, it's generally a very interesting technique to implement as it suggests that there are immediate gains. I don't know if you've recently read the piece. Um, I'm not sure who wrote it, if it was David Mitten or Adrian Crockroft, but, or maybe I might be mixing stuff up, where there was this, this piece called Don't Chase the Sun. So it was kind of like a, like a counter-argumentative piece. Um, that this, at the moment at least, often doesn't make sense. Um, and I will elaborate on this a bit further, but I would like to say ahead that I generally agree with, with Anne that this is an enormous saving techniques. And this is actually what, at least in Germany, we, we are implementing with the grid. I think every country it does, but I can only really speak for Germany by saying we want to have smart meters so that in the end, when we have surplus energy and we really need to not waste it by curtailing it. We want to charge electric cars to this particular time. And in Germany, we have a long way to go by incentivizing people to charge them at these hours so that it's actually cheaper to wait. So currently at the moment in Germany, it's not cheaper to wait even if we would have smart meters because there is a law that, that makes this, uh, that the pricing even throughout the day. But if you look at the current state of, of how time shifting works, um, we are, we're currently implementing um, um, a small plugin for GitHub where you can say, hey, I want to run this pipeline at this particular amount of time because the prognosis or the forecast says that there will be green energy at the time. However, how the grid operators, to my knowledge, is that typically they plan out how the grid is supposed to be and you are very likely, if you're at some point where the, the forecast says there is a lot of green energy and the grid is already in a stable state and you do demand more, then it will not come from solar because this is or, or from a wind farm because this is then already curtailed because the grid needs this bit planning ahead. So they will more likely act, um, drive the power plant that runs on coal a bit more up. But this is a momentary problem to my understanding. Like if, if they learn these signals over time, so even if you do that five, ten times, the grid will learn it and then you then they will actually not curtail the green energy so much and you will get it. But it's the same as with network savings. It's it's often not an immediate gain. It's more a theoretical long-term thing until we can understand the signals better. It was Adrian's article, Don't Shave the Sun. Yeah. And you wanted to say something, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I totally agree on both the, the on both the don't chase the sun. You don't really want to be moving your data around. Uh, what you want to be doing is 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 delaying it, <laughs> you know, rather delaying jobs rather than moving data around to chase the sun. I agree with both Anna and Adrian on that one. It's it's interesting. It's what um, uh, Anna mentioned earlier. Uh, YouTube. So YouTube is an excellent example of one of the products that Google used to do their own. Uh, kind of grid balancing um, uh, on, on their hardware. That um, if you upload a, um, a, a video on YouTube, sometimes it happens. Sometimes you'll notice that it's transcoded very quickly, and sometimes it won't be transcoded for a while. And it's uh, the reason for that is that they use that as one of their latency insensitive workloads. If they've if got they've got a lot of stuff that's going on, if the systems are busy, they'll just shove that um, transcoding it's a little bit later in the day when things are less busy so that they get better utilization on their machines and, and right now they're working on similar kind of shifting to uh, to try and move work to when the sun is shining and when it is potential when there is potential to uh, to, to power it greedily but Anna is right, is right that there isn't necessarily an immediate benefit to that because Right now, the, the grids might not have enough green energy to provide that if you, if you um, because they, you know, they may, may already be containing it. But in the long run, if you create demand at times when there is potential solar to, or wind to match it, then more solar and wind will be, will be put in. So it's not necessarily an instant win, but right now we're all, it, it's, it's about the transition. It's about moving to how we're going to work in that, in that new world. I don't remember if he mentioned also this aspect in his article, but it's also that chasing the sun is actually an issue once you start implementing multi-criteria approach, because carbon is one thing, but water is another. And, you know, if you shift all the workloads in country where you've got plenty full of sun, usually water is pretty scarce. And we 
are experiencing uh, se- several droughts here in Europe, and the same goes in the US. So the moment you say, okay, let's chase the sun for um, green electricity, you might also create a lot of problem when it comes to water stress. So that's also why I kind of like his expression, don't chase the sun. Maybe chase the wind is uh, is a bit more accurate. But eventually, I guess it's all about reducing the energy intensity. And, and yeah, don't go for a silver bullet or quick fix that actually does not exist in this energy transition. That That's how I understood his main message. And I could not agree more with uh, both of you. If you're okay with it, um, because we talked a lot about measuring metrics, etc. So could you maybe share a bit, both of you, um, the do and don't when you measure and maybe one or two examples on how you manage to measure for some, some of your clients? What I see in particular is that people have um, very often very different setups, which um, I think is normal if, if, there is, um, if, if people are trying to uh, find ways how to measure things and there is no standard out there. I think you can separate it in, in two basic domains. So there is a cloud at the moment, which most of the measurement techniques are not available that we use. So the cloud is typically more an estimation game. So you have pre-measured machines, and I will will come to a bit how you you do that. So you have basically pre-measured machines. You have something like, you could call it a calibration curve, if if you want to. So I know it's not technically correct, but for some people, this term might mean something. But you basically have, have a curve that tells you at this amount of utilization, this machine uses this amount of energy. And this curve is typically nonlinear, which which requires a bit of a um, a bit more than just a simple m m times x plus y or sorry m times x plus b. So already getting to the technical stuff, <laughs> let me cover go back a little more than a linear equation to to solve this problem. So you need a bit more. So here an easy machine learning model is what we use, for instance to cover to get this curve and then you can go into the cloud where at least the utilization which is a, a typical devops metrics or, or a typical monitoring metric that is usually available in, in many of the products you can use and you can to a certain degree assume that the configuration of the machine that you have already measured is very similar to the machine that's in the cloud as this database where we get the data from are typically machines that are bought by cloud vendors uh, and they often use standard configurations, um, not all, but but some. And then you can get a, a reasonable estimate of how much a machine in the cloud would use in terms of energy. So it is also a similar approach that cloud carbon footprint follows. They they do they have a linear assumption to my knowledge, but I haven't monitored it, it currently or in a while. We have this non-linear one, which is supposed to be a bit better. And I know there are people out there who have even better models, but they are not open source. So how do you even measure it if, if you're locally? So for a while, and this is also how um, how most of the academic papers have done it, is that people attach a power meter to the computer, which is something that everybody who has done home automation or just wants to know how much his microwave is really using knows. So it's basically a an adapter you can put over your power plug. Um, and it will tell you how much this um, machine that is connected to it is currently using in terms of watts or kilowatt hours if you want to have more like an energy and not a current power draw. Um, and they have also USB access, they have Bluetooth, so, so you can easily hook them up in kind of like a connected system that can also then run measurement jobs for, for people. And what has not recently, but for some people it is still new for, for developers because it's kind of under the hood, uh, is a technique that is called Intel REPL, or more like a hardware feature, I would say, not a technique. Um, it is something like a power meter inside of the CPU. Actually, it is, is still more an estimation calculation, but it's it's very accurate. So very many papers have already um, confirmed that it's very accurate to their falsification measurements. And what it basically gives you as a developer is you can write Linux code and there is is a a function you can trigger or a hook. And then you will get the energy that the CPU is using. So so you basically, hey, I'm going to start here. So you make a start point, then you run a bit of code and then you ask it again and then you get number Bs and then you have number A and number B and you subtract them. And then you know how much energy has been using between these two points. And... What we do for measurement in particular is that we write around these frameworks that already exist, so external power meters, onboard sensors that exist, so there's also techniques like IPMI, which are um, 
which are also internal power meters, so to say. There is this REPL stuff, and we, we glue them together in one big open source tool, the Green Metrics tool, that can, we call these sensors, that can attach these different sensors. And then we give this out as a, as a full-fledged solution to developers that already have software, which typically is now written in, in container form, already have their setup container files, so something like a Docker Compose file. And then they can just say, hey, please take this Docker Compose file, and then I want you, similar to like a bash script, so, so like a Linux easy script, um, and then I want you to run you uh, run this line, this line, this line, maybe run this node program, maybe run the browser, and then you're finished. And I would like you to tell me in between, uh, like every 100 milliseconds or every 50 milliseconds, I would like you to write down the energy, right? And then at the end, you get all the energy nicely displayed in the graph. There is some statistics applied to it. Like, has there really been a change from the last time you've tested it to the, the time you've tested it now? And to make this even better, we then also offer a service uh, on the web for free where we have a measurement cluster with pre-configured machines that apply best practices, how to measure. And I can elaborate a bit further on them later, but they do exist. And then you get a better measurement, right? It doesn't fluctuate as much. It is more reliable. So you don't need as many repetitions to get a good statistical conclusive answer if the code is really different to another piece of code. And um, yeah, we, we try to bring it into a tool so that developers can use it with techniques they already know, like starting and stopping containers uh, or firing up a tool on the command line. And then they get with the onboard mechanisms that already exists, like Intel REPL or using machine learning models through CPU utilization, they already get a metric out. So they don't have to be measurement professionals. They just need to know how to use a, a Linux tool. And this is where you can start comparing, I guess, or challenging the use of this library against another and, and, and all that stuff that you mentioned earlier. Yes, exactly. So, so the way to go would be then just you have a Docker Compose file, and then let's say in, in one time you use, um, as a package manager, you use NPM to install everything. You want to see if it goes faster or, or uses less energy, and then you use PNPM, or, or you use a, a different one. I think Yarn is also um, a package manager. And you, you can see if, if this library or, or, or tooling swap will change anything in, in your build process or your program. Hmm. Arne, you mentioned best practices, and I know that this is something that uh, is very keen to Anne's uh, heart. Could you maybe, Anne, tell us a bit more about these best practices? And Anne, if you don't mind, you, you might comment on it. Well, when Anne was talking there, the, the thing that immediately hit me, and I thought it's quite interesting, is in the old days, and you know, it is, it's worth thinking about what we used to do. In the old days, the reason why we did all of this stuff was performance. You know, it was like the machines where, you know, you had to, to ring every every um, millisecond of, of performance that you could out of systems. So when we we didn't used to measure energy use, we used to measure performance. So you'd 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 um, you'd time um, uh, how long everything every operation took, and and that's that's a, a fairly good proxy for energy use. Uh, how long things take, how how uh, performance stuff is. But I was thinking about it when Anna was, talk was talking there. But the trouble with it is, it's very custom. If you, you know, if you instrument your code to say, oh, well, I, I, as soon when this message comes in to here, and then this message leaves here, how long is that? That and if it's less, if, if, because how long things take is often about um, how many CPU cycles it's gone through, and then how many CPU cycles it goes through is often is is basically how much energy you're using. So, so there's a good correlation between performance and being green, which is why a lot of these kind of highly tuning techniques are still used in networking where performance is absolutely key. So you've got that. But the trouble with that is it's very specific. It's very custom. It matters. You have to know what your what an application is doing. You have to know which messages are going through and you know where, where to put your instrumentation in. Whereas if you're just measuring the uh, energy use of a whole system, that's more generic. Therefore, it, you can have tools that are more are generally usable by everyone rather than doing things that are very, very specific and custom. So I assume that's the reason why we've moved over from using performance as the key kind of way that you measure energy use to actual energy use, <laughs> because it is more generic and therefore it's more uh, widely applicable. But would you say that was true? Well, 
I, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying. And uh, if if I speak to more more seasoned engineers, they they often ask the questions like, "Do we really need green coding? I mean, we have performance optimization. So where, where is the knob to tune um, if if I don't take the the classical performance techniques, right?" And I think I think you mentioned some of the green green coding techniques already. Um, I, I think they are unique to green coding, like like time shifting in particular. It doesn't save you any performance, right? It only saves you green energy or saves you uh, carbon emissions in particular. Um, however, how, how we see it is that, sim similar to like how you said it, if you think about green coding and there is energy now so widely available through many sensors, why not make it the first order metric? Because you, this is actually what you care about, right? You, you don't want to save on performance at the moment, or at least this is our mission. So you really want to save on energy. So why not take it, even if it's strongly aligned or if it's strongly collinear, with um, with performance metrics in particular. So when these metrics are not aligning, there is typically something um, something a bit wrong with uh, with with your code in general. So so there are energy anomalies where you see that maybe um, performance goes up or goes down, but the the energy budget goes in the different direction in particular, which could be like misconfigurations, for instance. So you could have like there is something like a vector instruction unit in the CPU nowadays called AVX, it was called MMX or SSE before, so also to get some gamers in the loop that might have heard these acronyms. They can, they can be turned on then, and the CPU is using more energy, but actually it's not doing anything uh, because it's currently not issuing any of these instructions. And this is typically um, a misconfiguration, so some something turned this unit on and then it's using more energy and it's not needed. right? And it could also be that you have um, your heart is misconfigured, like it's spinning all the time, it's not going into a something like a, a sleep mode or, or, or a pause mode, or it can stop spinning the disks. Um, although you know you're not using the um, the hard drive in particular, right? This is also in the whole discussion about idle time here comes into play. So your performance metrics could be perfect, but still the machine is on. So a, a green coding technique, a classic one, and this also is what our tool shows, is that if your code is doing nothing at the moment, like does it really have to be on? Maybe an architectural decision is here needed where you say, hey, maybe we move from a super highly coupled, um, highly integrated, vertically only scalable monolith to something like a, a microservice architecture that we can actually turn off between requests because we see more uh, more pause uh, than we really see activity. So the node doesn't have to be on all the time. Why not use the energy or, or the carbon metric as your first order metric? And then if you, however, if you lay hands on the stuff, you tune the performance metrics typically, right? But, but the, the measurement that you want to optimize against is the one that is actually following the goal that you want to achieve. That's a great point. Yeah, I do agree. Especially when uh, we know that we will more and more, as you, as you mentioned, Arne, uh, have to take into consideration embedded carbon and, and, and you know, full life cycle carbon, et cetera. And at, maybe at some point, as you say, it will be environmental metrics and not just carbon because we have other environmental impacts we do need to take care. And this is really the question of which machi machine shall I use? And sometimes using a um, less powerful machine, older machine, uh, is also a way to, to save carbon. But that opens a, a completely different debate. It is a different debate, but it is worth reminding. We do. We do. Are there are three ways that that the tech industry has has to improve things. We have to not. It's not just code efficiency. It's not just be energy efficient. It's also about being hardware efficient because hardware embodies one heck of a lot of carbon uh, and time shifting. Those are the three things, and we have to do all of them. We can't just do one of them. Yeah, I know. Recently, I was preparing a conference, and I just found again this. Amazing interview that Jerry McGovern did with um, Melvin Vopson. And I know this is a theoretical work. It's just, you know, to raise alarm. But Melvin <laughs> Vopson estimated the amount of mining that will need to occur to build the server to handle the 25% growth rate in data on a yearly basis that we have today. So like, you know, plus 25% data equals that amount of servers to be built just to you know manage it <laughs> and he discovered that um in 2000 it's against 2053 yeah 2053 humanity will have to mine the equivalent of mount everest huh? so that's 175 billion tons i i'm, I'm i think 
just to build servers, just to handle the data. We're only talking about the data. And of course, then we can say, well, yeah, but we'll have a like energy efficiency, more efficient to assess. But the, the scale is still so amazing that it is something that yeah, we will have to pay attention to in a very near future. I know that at the moment we are focusing a lot on energy and immediate carbon emission because of uh, electricity, but uh, the embedded carbon is the next big battle. And actually it will be, I truly believe, the, the main battle at some point. Yeah, and, and not just in, in data centers. I Every time I have to throw away or or give away or do something with a um, a working device, like a phone or a laptop because it's out of support, it's out of security patch support, but it works, you know, and there's just so much embodied or embedded carbon in that device. It's immoral, basically, for us to know, to to kind of give up on on providing security patches. for. Yeah, that's true that we need to remember that um, end user devices, uh, they account for three quarter of the entire environmental uh, footprint uh, during the, the manufacturing phase. I mean, not, not the, the building phase. And so mining, manufacturing, transport, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, as as professional in tech, we focus on what we can do, which is mostly data centers and networks. But that's also true that when you talk with a, with a with designer, for instance, they are more and more aware of the trade-off between uh, do I want to enhance my code, even to do green coding, versus how I make sure I actually reduce the size of my code, not create a extra complexities that will uh, accelerate software obsolescence and hardware obsolescence. So that, that, that's a very important battle as well. Can I ask you a final question? And that will be on best practices. And I know, Anne, that there are quite a lot of uh, good and sound advices uh, in your book. And Anne, you already uh, touched upon them a bit, but uh, if you want to comment, just feel free. But maybe Anne, as a one of the three author of the next O'Reilly book. What are the best pages? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the introduction um, summarizes everything in the whole book, and that's already available in in very rough uh, pre-release form on the O'Reilly website. And you don't even have to to buy an O'Reilly subscription because you can just, um, as O'Reilly say, you can do a trial and you can have a quick read of it. Uh, and eventually, when it when it's finally published, the whole book will will also be simultaneously public uh, open sourcing, but but not until it actually finally publishes next year. So so all of that will be available. Yeah. So principles. This is a horrible thing. Nobody wants to hear this. No technology person wants to hear this. But really, the best practices don't focus on optimizing your own code. Use code that's pre-optimized by somebody else because that is by far the most effective thing you can do. In the long run, ChatGPT is going to be much become much better at optimizing code. Compilers are getting much, much better at optimizing code. So um, you try and push that job off onto somebody else. But do be thinking about um, architectures and designs that will work with time shifting. So things like spot instances and microservices where you can turn things off, as Anna mentioned, or you can time shift them. Think time shifting first uh, is my, I is guess my advice. Because you're influenced by your science fiction work. Like you want to travel across time. And this is why you're so obsessed <laughs> by time shifting. That it is finally happening. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Arm? Do you want to travel uh, in time yeah. again? <laughs> Also, sorry. Um, yeah, as I said before, I'm, I'm also. I also think that time shifting will be one of, of the of, of the bigger gains in the future. And um, embodied carbon is, is one of the battles. I think one of the bigger battles to fight. Although there, I don't really know how the optimizations and and this one will play out because it's so opaque at the moment. Like I'm, most people don't even know how S3 is, for instance, implemented and what kind of hard disks. So it's very hard to say how optimizations could even work for. A system like this, right, which stores, I think, most of the of the data that that the internet holds at the moment. I think my take on optimization techniques is very simple, so to say. So, although we speak a lot about these particular, very, as I mentioned some before, like these vector instruction techniques, etc., and these energy and um, and performance metrics. Uh, anomaly. So we speak about them because developers like to hear these super funny edge cases where something goes horribly wrong. Um, but I think for, for a daily business, if you really want to save energy in your code, most developers know how to do it. 
So um, there's really nothing you have, you have to tell the developers really to do it. It's more like that they are overwhelmed. Business is not giving them the time and the support to do it. So, so I would really say that, that the key at the moment in particular is transparency. Like wherever you can, measure your stuff, even if it's not the best metric, and make it public. If it's on your own blog, if it's in the GitHub repository, or even if it's just in your notebook that you at least know what your code is doing. And then the other thing is, is ask. Like ask your management for how much is our code emitting? Can you not give out these numbers? Ask the cloud providers, also something that, that Anne mentioned, which I think will drive a lot of the transition. Like you have to ask for these metrics. Like if, um, for instance, if I go to the supermarket and I always buy a product and I'm always angry that it's not packaged in a recyclable paper and I never ask the vendor, like, like how, how I am thinking that something's going to change. Like there is no mind transition. Uh, I don't know what the English term for it is, like some, something my, my mind goes into his mind and he obviously knows that I'm unhappy with the product, I have to ask for it. So I, I think this is really at the moment the key and these techniques like time shifting, there I really have to say, and maybe this is a bit of um, belly rubbing for you, Gail, like hear podcasts like Green.io because there you will hear about new techniques that um, developers find that are useful and should be employed. Well, thanks. And that's a beautiful um, transition to my last question, which are, what are the main resources you would advise the developer community to um, to go for uh, when trying to green their code? But, Anne, you cannot mention environmental variable because I'm going to do it first and give a big kudo to Chris Adams and Asim Hussain and the wonderful work they do with the regular guests like you. So environmental podcast, definitely a podcast to listen. I, I guess I'm listening pretty much every episode. So... I've taken this one, so you need to find another one. <laughs> well, of course, I'm going to mention my book. <laughs> I'm going to mention my book. So building green software. So, and, and I have good reason for mentioning this because we are publishing it with, every month, ideally, hopefully, we'll be dropping a new, it's a rough early chapter and we're looking for feedback. So at buildinggreensoftware at gmail.com, sorry, the, uh, you'll be able to send us feedback for what you'd like to see in the book that is not already being covered. So if there are questions, if you're if you're reading it and you're going, oh, or, or I'm on Twitter, um, Sarah's on Twitter, Sarah's on LinkedIn, we're very happy to hear you come back and say, yeah, but I wanted you to answer this question. We will attempt to answer the questions. Um, yeah, I, I also pick up the question. So I'm monitoring a lot, apparently, um, like the Google, I have Google alerts that that's, um, that alert me about new stuff that is coming out. I'm, I lead the Green Software Foundation newsletter. I read the Climate Action Tech newsletter. I'm an avid follower of this podcast. Um, but I would say that there is no no one resource. I think this is what you what you are kind of shooting for, Gail. So so there is no one central place where you can find the best information for it. But if if I would have to name something that at least is a topic, I think that the the most value I got so far in particular and, and the most helpful uh, techniques is like conferences. I think if, if people get a, get a conference talk in somewhere where you have a sustainability track, this is already something that is a bit bigger and this is um, to be watched at. So I, I think if you just want to follow one resource in particular, um, get an alert of something like sustainability conferences or sustainability tracks in IT conferences. I think there I've seen the most valuable content. Well, that's music to my ear, knowing that uh, we'll be in charge of uh, the sustainability track both at API Days London in Paris this year. So that's, that's okay. <laughs> I've got like a big blessing from you. Thanks a lot. But yeah, that, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's so true that conferences are, that they're cool. I mean, you can interact, you can discuss with your peers and that changes everything, I guess, from like being just a passive listener. And um, I know, unfortunately, no, I, no, I, I didn't... Uh, aim for a single source of truth. I'm always a bit dubious with uh, with these approaches. <laughs> but uh, that that's great, actually, that you, you mentioned it, because we tend to mention articles, podcasts, etc. But yes, conferences. And the, the big fight made by the Green Software Foundation, I mean, they, they've got a, a speaker repository now. And I know that their approach is like, no conference today in tech can spare having a sustainability track or at least some talks on sustainability. And I think that's a great approach. And I've like gathered people from all over the world saying, hey, these folks, and as far as I remember, both of you are uh, in this uh, speak on this speaker bureau, but these folks, and I do as well, full disclosure, but um, 
yeah, these folks, they can talk, you know, and um, if you cannot find anyone, then just, just, you know, connect with them, but you cannot have like a big conference without someone talking about carbon, uh, sustainability and so on. So it makes definitely a tough, lot of sense. Um, well, thanks a lot, both of you. That was a very lively discussion. I really enjoyed it. And just, you know, letting you answer to each other. That was really music to my ear. So um, I'd like to thank you once again for uh, all the feedbacks and insights that you shared uh, with us today. And uh, once again, thanks a lot. Thank you, Gail. It was great to be on the show. Thank you very much. And that's it. Thank you for listening to Green IO. Make sure to subscribe to the mailing list to stay up to date on new episodes. If you enjoyed this one, feel free to share it on social media or with any friends or colleagues who could benefit from it. As a non-profit podcast, we rely on you to spread the word. Last but not the least, if you know someone who would make a great guest, please send them my way so that we can make our digital world greener one bite at a time.